The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Moving Beyond Conventional Care for DLBCL, Oncology Nurse Leadership for the Effective and Safe Use of Innovative Antibody and Cellular Therapies. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash ZUH860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, and welcome to Moving Beyond Conventional Care for Diffuse Large B-Cell Lymphoma. I am Sonia Glenny, a nurse practitioner from the Swedish Cancer Institute in Seattle, Washington, and I'm so very pleased to welcome my colleague, Amy Goodrich, from the Johns Hopkins Kimmel Cancer Center in Baltimore. Today, we're going to talk about some of the newer developments in large cell lymphoma and use case-based guidance to illustrate how nurses can really raise the level of patient care by integrating novel antibodies and CAR-T therapy across multiple lines of therapy. Um, It's worth noting that we are going to review some of the the frontline treatments for large cell lymphoma and some of the newer newer regimens that might be coming down the pike, but this presentation as a whole will really focus on second line and beyond. Um, During this program, we will periodically share some resources that summarize take-homes from our discussion and also provide some useful resources for patient management. So please, if you can, take a moment to download these practical tools before we get started. And with that, let's begin. To set the stage for large cell lymphoma in 2022 and 2023, it is the most common non-Hodgkin lymphoma subtype in the United States, accounting for about 30 to 40% of all NHL cases. It is typically an aggressive, so fast-growing lymphoma um, that may present with rapidly enlarging lymphadenopathy and constitutional symptoms. In particular, these are the, the B symptoms that we look at. So patients who show up, They may come to their primary care because they're having um, fevers, night sweats, perhaps some weight loss or excessive fatigue. Um, And a lot of patients actually may present with pain. So chest pain, abdominal pain, um, that may bring bring them to the ER or to their primary. And it is worth noting that B symptoms are a negative prognostic marker in large cell lymphoma. So the IPI score is still our best prognostic tool for predicting outcomes in large cell lymphoma. If you're not familiar with it, it takes into account age and armor stage. So whether you have involvement above, below, or on both sides of the diaphragm, as well as the involvement of extranodal sites. Um, It also accounts for uh, performance status. So the ECOG score, the serum LDH level, and whether there are any extranodal sites involved. With that score, we can then try to prognosticate whether folks have a very good um, risk stratification or whether they fall into the good or poor. And definitely worth noting that almost half of these patients do have a, a poor, um, fall into the poor risk category. So you can see on the plot to the left that, that the patients with a um, IPI score of three, four, or five, we do not expect them to have very good outcomes in the long term. So where does this leave us? In spite of effective therapy, we definitely still have gaps. So at the moment, the standard of care in the front line is still our CHOP therapy, unless of course you have double or triple hit, in which case first line therapy is going to be our EPOC. Um, But there are multiple poor prognosis subtypes. So those double and triple hit lymphomas, the ABC subtype or non-GCB and And with our current therapies, 
if patients progress past that original RCHOP therapy, um, it's, it's generally a bad thing. And of course, the earlier that folks relapse, the more concerned we are that they're going to be refractory to future treatments. Um, so in the last several years, we've had several novel antibodies and cellular therapies come on the market with a lot more in the pipeline. Um, and all comers of large cell lymphoma, about 60% will be cured with frontline therapy. So either RCHOP or our EPOC, if they have that double or triple hat hit status. But what happens to the other 40%? Um, those folks, we obviously have to talk about second line and subsequent therapy. So are they a candidate for stem cell transplant or would CAR-T be more appropriate? Um, for some patients who maybe are, um, for whatever reason, they have reservations about pursuing cellular therapy, whether it's the travel or the potential AEs, we now have some novel antibody therapies and antibody drug conjugates that we can offer these folks. So Amy, what kind of a conversation do you have with your patients um, with their first relapse? So when patients relapse after their frontline therapy, it is, a, it is a pretty intensive discussion that you have to have with folks really understanding their goals and what, what they would like their, their uh, future to look like. And so, um, you know, just because somebody can have a transplant or can get CAR-T doesn't mean that they have to. So, you know, certainly if patients want to go down the most aggressive paths we are talking about transplants and CAR-T, but those folks who either are not interested or really have a lot of comorbidities or have social situations that do not allow them to do those more aggressive paths, we are definitely talking about some of our newer novel antibodies. And this has been a really great addition to our toolbox mm -hmm. for our patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And in terms of those newer antibodies that we now have available for our patients, we've got lancastuximab, tesserine, or lanca, um, and this is an antibody drug conjugate. The target is uh, CD19. It's approved in the third line. Polituzumab is also a, an antibody conjugate, uh, targets CD79B, and we're using this now in combination with bendamustine and rituximab. Um, we've got tafacitimab uh, that's also in second line, as is pola, uh, and tafa is used in combination with lenalidomide. And then, of course, we've got our um, CAR-T therapies, our Axacel, Lysacel, and Tisagen, Leclacel. Um, the first two are approved in second line now, and uh, Tisagen, Leclacel is approved in third line. So we really have a whole lot more available for our patients who have a relapsed or refractory disease. And so if we look at the NCCN guidelines, we talked a little bit about this. Um, Sonia, you talked about this, but in the first line, we are still using lots of chemoimmunotherapy. As you discussed, we're using our CHOP or for our highest risk patients, um, our EPOC. And then, you know, there are some other uh, drug combinations, getting rid of the anthracycline um, in patients with poor ejection fractions. And then for our very frail patients and our very elderly patients, we are using even more gentle, um, you know, RCEPP and, you know, not using liposomal doxorubicin and really trying to 
um, get some response and some efficacy without uh, a, a whole lot of toxicity. And then there is a category 2B maintenance recommendation using lenalidomide. So that's another thing that we can add in the first line to those patients who we are probably never going to take to some of those aggressive options if they would relapse after first line. And then in looking some of our uh, some of our newest developments, the Polar X study, which added polituzumab to um, our CHP, looks like it's improving progression-free survival and event-free survival versus our CHOP in the front line. So we may have something competing with our CHOP at some point in the in the near future. And then there's an ongoing trial that that we're all sort of looking at as well and watching, which is FrontMind, which is tafacitumab plus lenalidomab plus RCHOP versus RCHOP alone. So putting some of our newer regimens together with um, uh, RCHOP versus our standard of care RCHOP. And so, Sonia, do you, do you want to talk about this case, this 70-year-old woman diagnosed yes. with a diffuse large cell? Absolutely. Let's kind of dive in. And Amy, thanks so much for sort of reviewing all of those novel therapies. Um, Really helps to set the stage for the conversation that we will have with Susan, who is our 70-year-old patient. She has been diagnosed with DLBCL um, stage four with an IPI score of four. So that definitely puts her into that higher risk category. Um, She also has GCB subtype but does not have a double hit or a double expressor. So Susan has been through six cycles of RCHOP. She had a complete response at her follow-up PET. um, And she was seen, you know, every one to two months until about 10 months when she presented with um, new night sweats and some more weight loss. Um, And she was found to have relapsed at that time. So did not quite make it to a year after her RCHOP. um, But in spite of her relapse, she is maintaining a a good performance status. She's about an ECOG one. So really maintaining good function at this point. So Amy, what do you think is next for her? Um, You know, looking at the basics, is she eligible for a transplant? Would we talk to her about CAR-T? What are you thinking for Susan? Right. So it seems like she is, doesn't have a, a whole lot of comorbidities. She seems like she is a relatively healthy 70-year-old. So she is probably eligible for multiple um, options at this point. And that's where we need to be talking about what her goals of therapy are and what her social situation is like. And you know what is she really looking for as the uh, the next steps, and that's where it's so important for all of the members of the healthcare team to really understand these options, because mm-hmm. we know many times patients will not ask a lot of questions when they're seeing their physician, and they're waiting to interact with other members of the healthcare team to talk about what they're really wondering and and the questions that are really going to um, help them decide next steps for themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. And so if we look at the NCCN guidelines for second line, and this is where our patient is. So to, uh, for patients who are intending to go to transplant, we're looking at more chemotherapy. Um, we typically use a, a lot of ice or rice, um, but there are gemcitabine um, and cytarabine and platinum-based regimens that you can use as well. So for the folks who have uh, refractory disease, and those are defined as relapsing within a year of primary uh, treatment, 
and this is our patient here in our, our case study, um, those are folks that we're really thinking about CAR-T options. And then for folks who are not transplant candidates, you know, this is where our POLA uh, BR and our, our Tavalen come in and some gemcitabine-based um, options as well. But, you know, really you, you're giving the, a patient the whole range of options and, and really uh, encouraging them to understand the pros and cons at, at this point. And in thinking about why um, we have CAR-T in second line, there are a couple trials that um, led to FDA approval in the second line space. And so Zuma 7 looked at Axacel versus autologous transplant in relapse refractory diffuse large cell. And there was improved event-free survival in the, the Axacel arm and substantial event-free survival improvement, especially in patients over 65 years of age, which is our patient, um, and also uh, higher overall response rates and complete response rates. And then similarly, lysocell versus autologous transplant also saw improved event-free survival. And so both of these are now options in the second line for our patients with diffuse large cell lymphoma. And so, um, Sonia, after we you know, present this list of things that patients can potentially uh, receive in the second line, what kind of discussions are you having, um, you know, explaining autologous transplant versus CAR-T to your patients? Um, well, you know, I think that in somebody like Susan, who, so we're considering again, her age, not too many comorbidities to look at, um, which does sort of simplify things, right? We could potentially offer her a transplant. Um, I think one really important point that you touched on before was that she falls into this, this category of being refractory, right? She is not likely to see a ton of benefit from more chemotherapy, which is, would be the preparative regimen for an autologous transplant. So I think that that's certainly something that that we would talk to her about is just that, you know, we, we may um, recommend CAR-T a little bit ahead of transplant just because we wouldn't expect her to get full benefit from more chemotherapy and it may be better for her to sort of switch gears. But in terms of CAR-T versus auto, what sort of conversations are we having? Um, you know, we definitely can draw some parallels between or for some of the collection process, although CAR-T is a lot quicker. Um, you know, it's, it's just the, the one day to collect their cells versus the um, multiple days of GCSF shots followed by perhaps multiple days of collection. Um, toxicities is really where we see a, a fair divergence um, once the cells have been reinfused, right? So with transplants, of course, we're on really high alert for infections, GI toxicity in particular, um, pneumonia, those kinds of things. And with CAR, we're, of course, having the big conversation about CRS and neurotoxicity. So they each sort of have their own flavor of, um, of toxicities to consider. I think that in Susan's case, again, because she is refractory, she relapsed before even 12 months after her RCHOP therapy we are probably going to be looking more at CAR-T or a novel antibody therapy. What, what do you think about that, Amy? I, I agree completely. She is sort of the textbook CAR-T candidate. Okay, so assuming that Susan is going to um, consider CAR-T as an option, 
Um, some of the things that you need to be thinking about are CAR-T patients with active infection or inflammatory disorders. We should not be uh, moving forward to CAR-T. And then, uh, you know, hopefully everyone's aware that CAR-T is done in referral centers, specialized centers because of that uh, intensive monitoring that is needed uh, due to the toxicities. But patients really need to understand there's going to be some lymphodepletion pr prior to CAR-T. Um, and then the biggest issues for patients are neurotoxicity. Um, we've got IL-6 antibodies for um, um, cytokine release syndrome management, and you know they need to be ready for that cytokine release syndrome. And then neurotoxicity as well um, that is typically managed with steroids. But where the bulk of folks who are listening to this are going to jump in here is for that longer term, longer follow-up, um, uh, you know, things that they're going to come back to your clinics with um, and then monitoring them for relapse and recurrence. And patients really can, we're going to talk a little bit uh, more about this, so I don't want to jump ahead. But when we're looking at um, CAR-T recommendations, these are not all created equally. Dosing um, is different from agent to agent. So these are not cookie cutters. The details are slightly different. The schedules, the toxicity profiles are slightly different. And that's really the, the point here is that they are not, um, you know, these are not just carbon copies of each other. Um, so there is a little bit of variation from drug to drug. But when we're thinking about those, those CAR-T um, toxicities, again, you know, cytokine release, and you can see here fevers, hypotension, tachycardia, these are things that need to be done in a specialized center. Um, neurotoxicity can be very subtle, you know, little tremors or just a little bit of confusion or agitation. And then it can be quite serious with seizures and, you know, patients be, can, fortunately, this doesn't happen often, but they can become obtundent and everything in between, um, as you can see on this slide. But really, I think the, the nice thing here is the timing um, of these toxicities, the expected toxicities, cytokine release tends to happen pretty quickly, you know, within the first week or so. And then it, that neurological toxicity is going to happen a little later. And it really is pretty common for patients to have a little bit of that neurological toxicity when they come back um, to the community, when they go back to their referring oncologist. So definitely something that, that everyone needs to be um, aware of. Some of the factors that may limit the use of CAR T cells is disease progression. I know that we're doing plenty of bridging therapy. Um, some patients at this point, you know, if this is their second, third, or fourth line of treatment, may have very refractory, very aggressive disease and need some treatment in the interim. Um, infection can certainly delay things. Manufacturing failure. Amy, have you seen much of this in your practice so far? We've seen, yes, failures, but, but delays. That, that seems that's the bigger trend. The, you know, the turnaround is supposed to be 14 days or you know, approximately two weeks, and it's really not uncommon for it to take significantly longer than that. Yes, I, I agree. We're seeing like up to three, four weeks, depending on the product. Um, we have had some cells not, not produce enough. We, had, we actually had one patient who had too many cells 
And so he had to get a second round of bridging therapy and actually wound up in the hospital with an infection during all that because he had too many cells and they wouldn't release his product. Um, so didn't know that was possible, but it's it's another sort of manufacturing glitch that can really delay things um, and, and change the picture for the patient. And then, of course, there's socioeconomic barriers um, that overall access to care, travel logistics. I know, Amy, I'm sure you see patients from all over the country who are coming to your center for, for this therapy. Yes. Yeah, definitely. That is a, that it's a commitment for the patient, but also for their support system. And so that's, you know, even if the patient is interested, um, you know, if they can't just don't have that support, that is a, that's a, you know, that is definitely a barrier for some patients. Right. Right. And then the, the travel piece in there as yes. well, if they're coming from out of state. So let's talk about a, a possibility. Let's say that Susan has a ton of comorbidities. Um, she's got the, the same disease, but she also has um, diastolic dysfunction, heart failure, and moderate COPD. Are we still talking about CAR-T or transplant at this point? Well, probably not. Those are probably not the best options for her. Um, we would definitely be talking more about Tafilen and, and Pola BR for, for this patient. And so in thinking about why we're doing that, um, if you look at the Tafilen um, data, and this is in the relapse refractory setting, so the overall response rate is just under 60%. Um, and, you know, sort of amazingly 40% complete response rate. And then the duration of response for those folks who respond, that 40.3 months is really a very durable um, remission for patients with relapsed or refractory diffuse large cells. So this is really a very exciting addition to our toolbox uh, uh, for patients with diffuse large cell. Yes, Amy, I, I absolutely, I share your enthusiasm um, for the duration of response, you know, um, considering that patients who were refractory to rituximab-based regimens really did not have great outcomes um, just a few short years ago. So that, um, that long duration is, is a huge deal. So when we consider that um, TAFLN versus POLA-BR, R-squared, and CAR-T, in all of these studies, um, one of the, the trends is that um, Tafilen may significantly improve the outcomes for patients who are not eligible for cellular therapies. So again, really thinking about that duration of response, it's a big deal um, that patients can stay on lenalidomide maintenance um, after they finish their TAFA and still see some really durable responses um, and, and huge benefit. So if Susan receives her Tafilen, what are the dosing considerations that we're talking about? Well, I, I can't remember how far Susan lives, but you know, with cycle one, we do certainly have to consider that it's one of those that is dosed most, most frequently in cycle one. So we're looking at days one, four, eight, 15, and 22 for infusion room time. Um, but then it goes to weekly for cycles two and three. And beyond that, it goes to every two weeks for cycles four and beyond. Um, so really just making sure that folks understand that upfront, this is a bigger time commitment, but as they make it through their cycles, they will be required to be in the infusion room for less and less time. And I think that for our patients who are perhaps older, and I know for us, we have a lot of folks who aren't 
excited about driving into the city, paying for parking, those kinds of things. Um, you know, just being able to sort of reassure them that they will not be required to to be in um, more than twice a week, or sorry, more than twice a month um, from cycle four and beyond. Um, and then they will, of course, be taking lenalidomide for uh, 21 out of those 28-day cycle. And so when we're sort of showing this to patient, I, I actually really like these tools that give patients a visual representation of when they will be taking their tafacitumab um, or when they'll be receiving their tafacitumab infusion versus taking their len orally. Um, I think that this really helps illustrate that that um, the TAFA will be given less frequently as they proceed through the cycles. So tafacitumab does need pre-medication um, 30 minutes to two hours prior to starting the infusion. Um, however, you can actually drop those pre-meds after the first three infusions. And I know this is something that we have done fairly routinely in our practice is if folks do not have any reaction for the first three cycles, um, we will tend to drop their pre-meds. It just saves the time, um, saves them Benadryl, which of course can make people feel sleepy or hyped up depending on um, how they react to it. So just being able to cut that out is, is always a good thing. Um, so looking at the Elmine study, I know Amy kind of reviewed this a little bit earlier. Um, the most common AEs are gonna be neutropenia, uh, thrombocytopenia and febrile neutropenia. So assuming that she has a response to tafalan, but experiences myelosuppression with a neutrophil count of only 400 for over one week, what are we doing? Amy, how, do you, how would you handle this if, if she showed up neutropenic? Right. So you, you've got to hold, hold the therapy, um, you know, put her on some, uh, some broad spectrum antibiotics to cover that neutropenia. Watch those counts until the counts recover. And... Truly, most of the toxicity from this regimen is from the lenalidomide, you know, once you get past those initial infusion reactions. So you would handle this just like you would any other patient getting lenalidomide as part of anything else and start reducing the lenalidomide, keep the tafacitumab the same, um, but dose reduce that lenalidomide so that they can tolerate therapy, which is a very common thing with lenalidomide. So common. And I, I would say that we have a lot of patients who need to be dose reduced for fatigue as well. I don't know if that's something that you've seen in your practice. Yeah, but. absolutely. For, you know, a host of reasons. Yeah. The, yeah. I, when I start people on lenalidomide, I let them know that they're, they're unlikely to stay on that same dose just so they don't think that they are failing totally. or they're disappointed or, you know, feel like they have, are somehow deficient. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Moving on, you know, if, if Susan needed another treatment, let's say that she either wasn't tolerating tefillin or she progressed through it, um, then she, we might be looking at polituzumab, um, which is another antibody drug conjugate. And um, it's given over 90 minutes every 21 days for six cycles in combination with BR. You know, I think one thing to consider is that this is more chemoimmunotherapy with the BR. Um, and so that, that may be a consideration given all of her comorbidities, but um, this would certainly be an option um, and, and would be a good one to explore for her. And again, we're looking at um, infu reduced infusion times if, if she does well on this. 
when we're talking about polituzumab, peripheral neuropathy is certainly one of the most common side effects that we have seen in our practice. Amy, is that true for you as well? Absolutely. Yes. And so there are guidelines around dose modifying or or discontinuation if need be, um, if, if the neuropathy gets to a certain grade. Um, infusion reactions, myelosuppression, of course, with anybody on BR and then adding the POLA, we're looking out for any infections. Um, we thankfully do not see a ton of, of PML, but this is certainly a possibility with this regimen. But really, again, coming back to Susan, if she gets POLA BR in the second line setting, but then relapses, and again, this is Susan with all of her comorbidities, um, where do we go from here? Right. And so if she's not interested in in CAR-T, again, because of all those psychosocial reasons, so what are the options um, after two relapses for a patient that you are not going to take to CAR-T? So is it Lanka? Is it a targeted agent? Is it something else? And so let's look at the third line. And so we really, again, have our CAR-T options. Um, and then we have Lanka at, at this point, which is another antibody drug conjugate. And we also have Selinexor um, after two lines of therapy. So we are, you know, expanding our toolbox for this group of patients. Um, you know, and the more options we have, the better. I think that one of the things that I also um, like to make sure patients understand is that um, you know, and I know that, that Susan is is declining CAR-T, but that option doesn't go away. And so patients are often worried about sequencing and do they close the door on some things if they choose something else. And so that is really not the case. So you patients can get CAR-T and then get some form of transplant. They can get a transplant and get some form of CAR-T afterwards, and they can do all of these Um, second and third line therapies, even after CAR-T or after transplant. So these things stay on the table for the vast majority of of patients. Um, And I think that's an important thing to make sure that folks understand as well when they're, um, you know, be involved in that shared decision-making. Yeah. And so again, we'll look at Lotus 2. Again, when Lanka, Lanka shows really good activity in diffuse large B cell, the overall response rate of almost 50%. This duration of response is not, not as long as certainly Tafalen, but, but 10 months. And then, you know, for folks who respond well, it, it, it can be over a year, you know, but there's great variability here. Um, again, it's another option for our very, very heavily pretreated patient population. Yes, absolutely. Yep. And then, um, um, Sonia, do you want to talk about dosing with Lanka? Sure, sure. So Lanka is dosed as a a 30-minute infusion every three weeks for up to a year. And this is sort of an aside, but, you know, Amy, I'll tell you, we had one patient who who came to us for CAR-T, but he had a pretty aggressive disease. So we needed to give him some bridging therapy. We gave him one dose of Lanka and he went into a remission and he's now been followed by his local oncologist about an hour away. And we're just kind of waiting. So to your point, you know, there's no exact order that these things can be given in. Um, and, and he's a perfect example. 
So he got one dose, but normally um, Lonco would be given every three weeks for up to a year. And then maintenance would actually be every 12 weeks. So about every three months for up to three years. So for patients who do respond to this and continue to respond to this, I think this is a great option. Um, if Susan has those comorbidities or has travel difficulties or doesn't have the support for cellular therapy, um, that this, this might be a great option for her in the third line or beyond. And really just to kind of bring this home that this Lanka T is a safe and tolerable treatment. Um, it does come with some risk of neutropenia, thrombocytopenia, um, some, some liver dysfunction, um, but overall, it is, it is a safe and well-tolerated treatment. And so if patients do develop um, significant uh, toxicity from Lanka, of course, there are uh, guidance for holding and, um, you know, certainly for neutropenia, thrombocytopenia, uh, and significant uh, fluid retention, edema, effusions, you're going to hold, you're going to allow the toxicity to either resolve or become to become a, a reasonable um, level and then, um, you know, starting up again and, you know, use your tools and there's lots of, um, you know, lots of resources out there, but, uh, you know, withholding is definitely um, a, a strategy for Lanka. Yes. And then Sonia, what are, what are our take-homes here? Well, Amy, you know, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> um, really, the, the big take-homes for me, and thank you for such a, a robust and interesting discussion. Um, I'm reflecting on how very different this landscape looked when I entered it about, what, 10 years ago or so as, as a nurse. Um, and it's, it's amazing to me that in 2022, that there are so many options for patients with relapsed or refractory large cell lymphoma, where before it was sort of, you know, chemo and transplant are best. And now we have all these options for patients who are transplant ineligible, um, whether it is CAR-T, an antibody drug conjugate, um, uh, by specific antibodies that are all coming down the pipeline. We just have so many options. The, the buffet just keeps growing, which I think is really a wonderful thing that we're able to continue to offer new and novel therapies to these folks, whether or not they are eligible for transplant. So um, do you have any final thoughts, Amy? Really appreciate the conversation. Yeah, same, same here. No, I just think it's, it's, a great, it's a great day for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. It was stagnant for a very long time, and now it's changing every blink. <laughs> every blink, <laughs> yeah. there's something new. <laughs> truly, truly, which is wonderful. Um, so really just want to thank everybody for, um, for listening. And that concludes our case-based exploration of antibodies and cellular therapy in DLBCL. Um, thank you again, Amy, for being a part of this and helping lead this discussion. And we hope that, that everyone has found this activity to be informative and useful to your practice. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash Z-U-H 860. This activity is supported by educational grants from ADC Therapeutics America Incorporated, Insight Corporation, and Morphosis U.S. Incorporated.